NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm David Folkenflik. This hour, protests across China began over severe COVID lockdowns. NPR's Emily Feng on how they are expanding to push back more broadly against the government. In Oregon, new gun regulations are stirring unexpected opposition. Now, some sheriffs have espoused a fairly extreme position and said that they believe the law is unconstitutional, and so they're not going to enforce it. We'll talk to Ray Meadows about her new novel about a young Soviet gymnast and indie musician Alex G on the wisdom of not overthinking music. Just enjoy it. All this and more coming up. It's Sunday, November 27th. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder in China. Protests against the Chinese government's COVID-19 restrictions have spread to more cities following the fire at an apartment complex that killed 10 people in the western city of Urumqi. Those protesters in Shanghai gathered for a candlelight vigil that included calls for President Xi Jinping to step down. The protesters questioned whether COVID restrictions got in the way of first responders. Polish Prime Minister Maciusz Morawiecki says Russia is choosing destruction in Ukraine because it's losing the war there. Putin wants to take millions of people from Ukraine and around the world hostage to suffer and die so that Russia will be great. We cannot allow for this. We will never surrender to those brutal, barbaric regime, and we will always support our friends and partners from Ukraine. The Polish Prime Minister speaking this weekend at a meeting in Kyiv on food security and agricultural exports from Ukraine. Ukraine marked its Memorial Day yesterday for the victims of a 1930s famine under Soviet rule, accusing Moscow of using the same tactics. Billions of dollars in political party surrogates are flooding Georgia ahead of the December 6th Senate runoff race between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Alex Helmick has more. Warnock's campaign outraised walkers by about $32 million from late October to mid-November. And TV ads for both candidates, especially during prime football watching, seem to be on a loop. Walker is also getting help from national GOP funds and support from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and his in-state machine that handily defeated a Trump-backed primary candidate as well as Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams in the general election. Warnock is finding surrogate support from U.S. Senator Cory Booker over the holiday weekend and on December 1st in Atlanta, former President Barack Obama. Early voting is underway throughout parts of the state. For NPR News, I'm Alex Helmick in Atlanta. Emergency rooms and children's hospitals have been full for weeks with cases of RSV. More illnesses like it and the flu are circulating earlier and affecting more older children than normal because people haven't been exposed in recent years. Here's NPR's Yuki Noguchi. RSV is common with cold-like symptoms like sneezing and coughing. Most cases are mild but can be dangerous if it restricts breathing in young babies, the elderly, or those with chronic conditions like asthma. Face masks, and social distancing cut down dramatically on infections in recent years. As a result, many more children are getting exposed for the first time this year. Distressed breathing and dehydration are the primary concerns doctors have for those with suspected cases of RSV. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
This is expected to be a busy travel day in Massachusetts as people return from Thanksgiving trips. AAA says it expected nearly one in five people in the state would be traveling 50 miles or more from home from the holiday. AAA Northeast spokeswoman Mary McGuire says that will make for crowded roads and flights today. Airports will be very busy. You need to arrive early. We're recommending that in many cases, even for domestic flights, you arrive up to three hours early. So really allow that extra time for the TSA line. Allow that extra time on the road. If you're driving, the McGuire recommends leaving this morning to try to avoid the heaviest traffic. Police have arrested a second suspect in the Martha's Vineyard bank robbery. Omar Johnson of New Hampshire was arrested in Connecticut on Friday. Police say three armed suspects in masks robbed a branch of the Rockland Trust Bank in Vineyard Haven earlier this month. Police say one suspect remains at large. With the holiday season now underway, a lot of people are buying Christmas trees. Dave Bildorf is the manager of Hakeem Farm in Canton, a cut-your-own-tree operation. For us, it's either this weekend or the next one. Um, right after Thanksgiving is when everybody's home from college and spending time with their families, so it's a nice weekend for people to come out. Bildorf says because of inflation, your tree may be more expensive than last year. Women's World Cup ski racing is back at Killington Ski Resort in Vermont this weekend. The women's slalom and giant slalom races are also Olympic qualifying events. Resort president and general manager Michael Salamano says this is the sixth time the World Cup is run at Killington. There's about 90 athletes from 20 different countries. And the exciting thing, Michaela Schifrin's the best in the world and the best American racer. And her specialty is slalom, and she's won all five years. Killington's expecting about 12 to 15,000 spectators. It is 46 degrees in Boston with some rain likely later today. Highs in the low 50s. Rain tonight, then tomorrow a partly sunny Monday. Highs in the mid-50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm David Folkenflik. Thanks for joining us. Protests are growing across China, calling for an end to COVID lockdown rules and for democratic reform. They began on Friday after a deadly fire killed 10 people. Witnesses say the victims were unable to escape because they were in a building under lockdown. NPR's Emily Feng is in Taiwan and has been following this from the start. Emily, good morning. Good morning, David. Emily, how rare is it to see this kind of open dissatisfaction being expressed in China today? It is extremely rare, but it just seems like people are so angry and they're so fed up with nearly three years now of COVID controls that the dam is just broken. Here's what some protesters were shouting Saturday night at a protest in Shanghai. Xi Jinping! Xi Jinping! They're shouting down with Xi Jinping, and later they start shouting down with the Communist Party of China. And they're standing on Shanghai's Urumqi Road. This is a major downtown street, and it's named after the city, Urumqi, where that horrible apartment fire you just mentioned happened on Friday. And these protests are happening all across China, and they started because people were getting together. They're holding these candlelight vigils to commemorate the people who were killed in the Urumqi fire. But those protests have now spread from Urumqi and Shanghai to the streets and universities city campuses 
all over the country, including in the capital, Beijing, where just a few hours ago at prestigious Tsinghua University, there were protests that happened again. Tsinghua is the alma mater of China's leader Xi Jinping, and here's what students were shouting. So you can hear a few hundred people shouting, we want rule of law and democracy. How has the government responded? Well, in some limited ways, the protests have actually succeeded. For example, in Urumqi, where the first protests began, authorities actually caved. They gave a press conference saying, after these demonstrations, we're going to let some people go out of lockdown after more than 100 days of not being able to leave their homes in neighborhoods that are low risk, that don't have active cases. But the state is swinging into action to crack down on these protests and just hide how pervasive they're becoming. So they've turned up censorship. Thousands of social media posts are being taken down an hour showing the protests. And instead, state propagandists are flooding the internet with distracting videos of like animals and cute girls. And the police are making mass arrests as soon as people disperse from these protests. Police are coming through and they're detaining people. Police have barricaded basically all of the sites where previous protests have taken place. And I'm in some of these online groups where people are trying to organize further vigils in Beijing. And people in those groups are saying it's just not safe. There are detentions ongoing and there are police patrols all over the city. What is the likelihood that the demonstrators' other demands, demands for democratic reform, demands for freedom of speech, could be addressed by the government? It's a good question, and it's one that a lot of people are asking. I mean, protesters have already achieved a lot despite political controls and fear of arrest. They've already come out, and that's extraordinary, and what's now a very powerful surveillance state. But president suggests that it's only really going to be a day or two more before the full weight of state control leads to these demonstrations fizzling out. That's my prediction. That could be wrong. But what might actually change is zero COVID policy because COVID cases are continuing to rise in China. And if they want to bring them down to zero, they're going to need to implement a full lockdown. But as we've seen from these protests, people don't want lockdowns anymore and they're not going to follow lockdowns anymore. So the country faces a pretty tough call going forward about whether or not they have to abandon zero COVID altogether. That's NPR's Emily Feng in Taiwan. Emily, thanks. Thanks, David. Thanksgiving is now safely in the rearview mirror, and we're accelerating into the holiday shopping season. This week, an estimated 166 million people, and yes, that's half of the U.S. population, all these folks will be shopping. That's according to the National Retail Federation. Businesses welcome this news, but there is a potential bump in the road, and that's inflation, of course. It's revving concerns about how much consumers will actually spend. So how are Americans feeling right now? Well, we headed out to a big box store in Landover Hills, Maryland, to find out. I just got out from the night shift, and I see the deal and I grab it right away. Gaitri Manaram stands about four and a half feet tall. She happily balances an ultra HD television in her cart. It's a 50 inch screen, and the box is bigger than she is. It's good deal. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Where'd you get the TV? Go, go on the walkway like this. Uh-huh. Veronica Funto has filled her cart. I have a few towels, a personal chiller, a mini fridge, a vacuum cleaner, a ninja, a blender. I have saved some, but um, of course, if you want it, you get it. It's the season to shop, so I'm just in the Philippines. <laughs> but not everyone found themselves in the spirit. A 23-year-old who goes by the name Vani Shadani milled around with a friend, 
and he said he was keeping his wallet closed. So this is like my first time doing Black Friday. The price is not like looking like how it used to like back in the day, like, oh, Q60 dollars for some electronics. Oh, it's giving like 140, 160, 120, one this. And then they got the little sneaky hidden fees. Christina Poe wanted to get gifts for her grandchild. She also said she was experiencing some sticker shock. We're looking to buy a TV, but we thought the prices would be a little lower than this. I expected the 55 inches to be at least 200. This is 278. I don't have that much money to spend. That money comes from my Social Security check, you know, and that's only 800. And I got to pay my bills too. So it's going to be hard this Christmas. Bargain hunting seems to be playing a bigger role this year as far as where and how people are shopping. If the economy was different, I would be given more. That's Shannon Carr of Cincinnati. Property taxes are going up. Gas and electric bills, the water bills are ridiculous. Basic month-to-month bills are a lot higher, and it and is sucking up a lot of money. We heard from Shannon earlier this year about rising prices at the dollar store, one of her favorite places. She doesn't mind talking about her spending, so we asked her to share how this economy is affecting the way she's planning for the holidays. I feel like I'm ahead of the game as far as gift buying and shopping and things like that. I tend to start right after the holidays. I love Black Friday, and also December the 26th is a very good day to shop. Like last year, I knew that I wanted a whole bunch of Christmas wreaths. So I got them off the clearance rack last year to use for this year. So I have a whole bunch of Christmas wreaths. In ways that I am thrifty is I look at sales. And if toilet paper is on sale, oh, this week I'm getting toilet paper. If soap is on sale this week, stock up on soap. I always look at that clearance rack and see what they have there. I love the thrift stores. I have no issue with going to the thrift store and buying a gift for someone because my gift is going to be unique, first of all. So if you want a gift from me, if nine out of ten, it may come from the thrift store. And that's one of the ways that I like to save. I use coupons. I use the, um, the store apps that has coupons on that. I don't go to the store without putting my um, coupon information in the system because we got to save. Why pay full price when you can get a discount? We're living paycheck to paycheck, so we make enough to pay our basic needs that we need to have and a little bit extra. That's Edwina Lucero. She works for Denver Public Schools as a music instructional curriculum specialist. This year, for our family, the economy has honestly not felt that much different. I mean, we are both educators. I mean, our entire adult lives, we've lived on educator salaries, so... There hasn't ever been a point where we've felt not kind of pinched in our purses. Some of the toys that our girls want, uh, the four-year-old is obsessed with bunk beds right now. So um, she's very excited about the idea of having a bunk bed arrive from Santa and having her little sister move into her room. She's super into Barbie and Frozen and Minnie Mouse. I'm not ready to yet face that there could be an issue buying all the things that we want to buy. 
we've never really done Black Friday, um, and I've actually gotten super into Cyber Week in the past several years since that's become a thing. What I love about shopping online, and I think there are more brick and mortars doing this, but the like payment plan option, the payment plan is essentially cash, but it's just spread out. It's like layaway. We may not have the cash right now to buy everybody's presents, but we actually can buy a bunch more because we can spread the payments out over like two months. So it's not quite the big hit on our wallet at the same time. We're both, my husband and I are trying to not create like materialistic monsters (laughs) at the same time. I think last year we realized we had kind of gone a little bit overboard with the small toys and just kind of the things that frankly end up kind of being junk a couple of weeks later because kids taste change so quickly and they get bored with things. We tried in the past with our older boys and it kind of worked um, something they want, something they need, something to wear and something to read, I think is like a little thing that people do. And I think we might try to move towards that with our girls as they get older. That's kind of the balance we're trying to strike is giving them this happy, magical, wonderful time, but also realizing that that's not everything and maybe moving the focus away from the gifts to like celebrating with family. Again, that's Edwina Lucero. She's one of several Americans telling us how they're approaching holiday shopping this year. Listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. Coming to WBUR City Space Monday, December 5th, award winning chefs and cookbook authors Barton Seaver and Jeremy Sewell discuss all things seafood and sustainability. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dedham Community Theater, now showing Devotion, an aerial war film inspired by the true story and best-selling book. Showtimes at DedhamCommunityTheater.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. Early voting got underway this weekend in Georgia's December 6th Senate runoff election between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. Early voting opened in parts of the state yesterday after Republicans lost several court challenges. Americans returning home from the Thanksgiving holiday may have to contend with the weather. Rain is in the forecast from the Ohio Valley and into the northeast, and snow is expected in the Pacific Northwest. And President Biden is among those returning home. He's scheduled to return to the White House today after spending the Thanksgiving holiday with family on Nantucket. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now airing a new season on the intersection of race and research on Pew's podcast, After the Fact, available at pewtrusts.org NPR. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm David Folkenflik. Mass shootings, massacres, are scarring the American landscape. They are so common that they prompt a predictable and grim sequence. News conferences offering updates on investigations vigils for those who died, and renewed calls for solutions to gun violence. We wanted to look this morning at how one state is seeking solutions. This past election, voters in Oregon approved a ballot measure aimed at tightening gun laws there. Measure 114 passed, if narrowly. It goes into effect December 8th amid some uncertainty about how it'll work and at least one legal challenge. Reporter Jonathan Levinson covers policing for Oregon Public Broadcasting, and he joins us now. Hey, Jonathan. Hi, David. What does Measure 114 seek to do, and what does it seek to achieve? This caps a years-long effort by gun safety advocates in the state to get more restrictive laws on the books. The law requires anyone who wants to buy a firearm to get a permit first, and so that means paying a maximum $65, passing a background check, getting fingerprinted, and taking a course. And that course would include a hands-on demonstration showing that you know how to safely fire a firearm. It creates a more strict background check as well. Currently, a person buying a firearm can fail a background check if they've been found guilty by reason of insanity or incompetent to stand trial and committed to a mental institution. Under this voter-passed law, a permit could be denied if a person is reasonably likely to pose a danger to themselves or others based on a past pattern of behavior, such as violence or threats of violence. With this law, Oregon also joins neighboring California and Washington and 10 other states in banning high-capacity magazines. And in Oregon, magazines capable of holding more than 10 rounds will be banned. So how is this going to roll out? The law takes effect December 8th, and so far it doesn't look like much, to be honest. The Oregon State Police are in charge of drafting the rules for purchase permits, and they've been pretty quiet about what that will look like. The requirements are fairly similar to the current process for a concealed handgun license, known as a CHL, with a few additions, like the hands-on portion of the course, for example. Right now, sheriff's offices run the CHL process, and it's presumed they'll be tapped to run the permit-to-purchase applications. A lot of them, as well as firearms dealers in the state, have joined a chorus of pushback saying that they simply don't have the capacity to process even more applications or host the training sessions to meet demand. But if you look at how many gun sales there were last year and how many concealed carry licenses were issued, it's not totally clear this would add a huge amount to their workload. The permits are good for five years, so there's certainly going to be a surge up front, but that should taper off. So given what you're describing, how strongly is law enforcement embracing this measure and embracing this new law. Right. Like you mentioned, this measure passed by a very thin margin. It was largely carried by the state's more liberal, populous counties. In some more rural counties, I mean, it got trounced by like a more than two-to-one margin. Many sheriffs have said they won't make enforcing the magazine ban a priority. Others have addressed some unfounded fear-mongering and said that, you know, deputies won't be going door-to-door searching for contraband. But they said it's still their duty to uphold the law. Door-to-door? Is that something even envisioned by the law? Absolutely not. This is the kind of fear-mongering we hear when new gun laws come around that, uh, you know, law enforcement's going to be going around and actively seizing weapons or seizing magazines. 
Now, now, some sheriffs have espoused a fairly extreme position and said that they believe the law is unconstitutional, and so they're not going to enforce it. To be clear, it's not a sheriff's job to interpret the Constitution. That's something judges do. But this rationale is pulling from the extremist constitutional sheriff ideology. This was popularized in the 1970s by a white supremacist named William Potter Gale, and it resurfaced during the Obama administration by a former sheriff who's closely aligned with the Oath Keepers militia named Richard Mack. The idea has gained a foothold here in Oregon among several sheriffs and other far-right groups, and so we're seeing that resurface again. So how is this playing out right now? So there's already one lawsuit filed in federal court asking a judge to throw it out, saying it's unconstitutional. And since voters passed the law in November, gun sales have skyrocketed in the state. According to the Oregon State Police, background checks have more than quadrupled on some days. Jonathan, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, David. That's OPB's Jonathan Levinson. Lithium is a key component of electric vehicle batteries, and the world needs a lot more of it to, pr- to reduce fossil fuel use and avoid climate catastrophe. The obvious but environmentally problematic answer? Build mines. Turns out new mines aren't the only way to get more out of a hot commodity. Here's NPR's Camila Dominoski. Halfway between Reno and Las Vegas, there's a dry lake bed over the bones of an ancient volcano. Down a gravel road and past a security checkpoint stretch a series of Caribbean blue ponds. They're filled with brine, a mixture of water and salt and lithium. This is one of the first pumps where brine comes in and gets pumped into here. This is where the process starts. Julian Ortiz is leading journalists on a tour of Silver Peak Lithium Mine. A century ago, this was home to a traditional old-school silver mine with men tunneling into the hills for ore. But today, it's probably not what you're picturing when you think of a mine. There's no giant pit, no dark tunnels, just these pools of brine pumped up from underground to a series of ponds. It's quiet. In fact, it's not the easiest scene to capture for audio. Just sitting underneath this very intense sun, and the water is evaporating. For 50 years, workers here have used the power of the sun to concentrate the lithium inside this brine. It wasn't a high-profile mine because lithium wasn't a high-profile mineral. It went to glassmaking or bipolar medication or industrial lubricants. But lithium particles can do a pretty cool trick. They can move back and forth between the positive and negative end of a battery, releasing and storing energy as they go over and over again. That's what makes a lithium-ion battery work. And those batteries are crucial for the fight against climate change. All that means this old mine has new energy. In the past year, lithium has tripled in value. Battery manufacturers are desperate for more of it. So miners here are pumping more brine and getting more lithium out of every drop. All told, Silver Peak is doubling production. That still doesn't make it a huge mine as these things go. Just here in Nevada, there are proposed lithium mines that would be much larger. But one of those mines threatens a rare wildflower. Another has prompted intense local opposition. Silver Peak doesn't have those controversies. It's a lot easier to boost production at a mine that already exists than to start a new one. Of course, it still can't happen overnight. It can take up to two years for a molecule of lithium to make it from that first pond to the packaging plant. We pump the brine off of the last pond out there. It goes into a couple of holding tanks. That's Brad Earhart, the head of maintenance at the mine. 
Inside an old mill from back when this was a silver mine, they take that brine and add a chemical that reacts with the lithium to make a white powdery substance. They dry that out and blow it into giant white bags. Each weighs one ton. This is the stuff that battery makers are so desperate to buy. If I tasted it, would it have a taste? I would, I'm not going to taste it. Tastes a little bit like lemons. Like lemons? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Like, yeah, he, he was pulling my leg, but let's run with this. Imagine that you're a lemon farmer and the world suddenly wants a lot more lemonade. The price of lemons, say, triples, and it's going to take time for the world to plant more lemon trees. What do you do? You sell every single lemon you possibly can, right? You squeeze out every drop of juice. That's what Silver Peak is doing, and not just Silver Peak. Big mines in South Africa, Argentina, and Australia are ramping up output quickly. Susan Zhou is a senior analyst with Rystad Energy. Actually, in the past six months, we have been already quite surprised to see how fast those existing projects have responded to the lithium price hikes. And they're making a lot of money in the process. Albemarle, the mining giant that owns Silver Peak, just had its best quarter ever. Talk about turning lemons into lemonade. Boosting output at existing mines is the obvious way to make more lithium. But it's not the only way. There's lithium in the brine used at geothermal power plants. Lots of companies are trying to figure out how to extract that lithium at a profit. And there's a magnesium mine in the US that was making lithium as a waste byproduct. They're selling it now. That's kind of like finding a giant stash of lemons in a trash heap. Kwasi Ampafu is the head of metals and mining at Bloomberg NEF. There's something interesting about high prices. It incentivizes everything. Back at Silver Peak Mine, a van drove to the top of a pile of salt as big as a hill. This is salt that was scraped out of these evaporation ponds, left over as part of the lithium mining process. It was a crunchy and oddly sparkly setting for an interview. Karen Narwald is the chief administration officer of Albemarle, the company that owns this mine. She says better technology is going to help companies meet this growing demand for lithium. We're all looking at additional ways to get more. Aside from squeezing everything it can out of mines like Silver Peak, Albemarle is also making plans to reopen a big old lithium mine in North Carolina. That's a rock mine, not a brine mine like this, and it's been closed for years. But it was an operating mine back pre-1980s. And reopening a mine? It's an easier lift than launching a brand new one. Albemarle will also start recycling old batteries for lithium. And then remember how some companies are finding lithium in the trash heap? That could even happen here. There's a theory that the salt that comes out of these ponds um, can also be reharvested. Turns out that giant hill of salt we were sitting on top of, it's full of traces of lithium. Now, existing mines and shutdown mines and trash heaps, all of that can only go so far. To meet projected long-term demand for lithium, analysts say the world will still need new mines. And that means hard conversations about where and how to build them responsibly. But as those conversations unfold, the fight against climate change isn't waiting to hear how they pan out. The global race to make more lithium, it's already underway. Camila Dominoski. NPR News from Silver Peak, Nevada. What makes a good leader? 
assertiveness, empathy? What about, and stick with me here, parasites in the brain? A new study published in the journal Communications Biology indicates that the presence of the parasite Toxoplasma gondii in an individual wolf makes it much more likely that that wolf will become a pack leader. Results in this finding were pretty significant in that Toxoplasma gondii infection was 46 times more likely to predict that a wolf becomes a pack leader and 11 times more likely to predict that a wolf would disperse from their kind of home, their natal pack. That's Connor Meyer, a grad student at the University of Montana, who authored this study along with Kira Cassidy, a research associate at the Yellowstone Wolf Project. You heard right. Their research indicates that a wolf is 46 times more likely to lead its pack if it's been infected with this parasite. Meyer says these results indicate how influential even the tiniest organisms can be. A lot of research is done on wolves and elk and cougars and deer and kind of the big things that we can see. Maybe it's actually the little things that can be affecting individuals and affecting ecosystems. Cassidy and Meyer decided to look into the role this tiny parasite might play in Yellowstone's ecosystem, where they already have nearly 30 years of data on the park's wolves. Studies have shown this parasite can change the behavior of a mouse so that it takes more risks. Meyer and Cassidy wondered if the changes that show up in infected mice might also show up in wolves. We tested a bunch of different things. We wanted to know if wolves were taking bigger risks. So we wanted to know, are they more likely to disperse or become pack leaders? As it turns out, wolves that were testing positive for toxo were more likely to disperse and more likely to become pack leaders than wolves that were negative. I want to be clear, this doesn't necessarily mean they're good leaders. Maybe they're poor leaders. We actually don't know if they're doing a good job or not. But I think the quality of the leadership, once it reaches that position, is going to be one of the most interesting things to look at next. Worried that these findings could foreshadow a possible wolf-zombie apocalypse? Well, the parasite causes the temporary disease of toxoplasmosis in all mammals, including us. And while its effect on humans is difficult to track, maybe you've had a sudden craving to, I don't know, attend a leadership conference, to network, to lead a wolf pack? It may not be you. It may just be a parasite. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Many cities experimented with closing some roads to car traffic early in the pandemic for outdoor dining or socially distant strolls. In Washington, D.C., Jacob Fenston from member station WAMU takes a look at the lasting effects of such measures. A few dozen people are gathered in Rock Creek Park, a big tract of forest in the middle of D.C. It's cold and windy. But it's a great day for a beach party. They're here to celebrate the permanent closure to cars of the main roadway through the park. It's called Beach Drive, hence the beach party. Diane Bolton biked here with her eight-year-old son. I cannot tell you how much stress has been lifted, not having to worry about the car that's going to pass me unsafely. 
For decades, Beach Drive was a busy commuter thoroughfare into downtown D.C. When the pandemic hit, traffic dried up and the National Park Service closed nearly three miles of the road to cars. Julie Washburn is superintendent of the park. We kept thinking that it would be, you know, three months, (laughs) six months, okay, a year. According to one Cornell study, more than 150 municipalities in the country closed some streets to motor vehicles during the pandemic. 94% of those ended after just six months. But some were too popular to change back easily. In D.C., park officials backed off after an onslaught of angry comments. In San Francisco, a similar story played out when the city temporarily closed a road in Golden Gate Park. Roller skater David Miles Jr., who's known as San Francisco's godfather of skate, says people loved it. You got to enjoy, I mean, a beautiful day. Here it is, 75 degrees outside. The sun is shining, no fog. The park is closed to cars every day. You start making that a habit. Since the early 80s, Miles has been fighting to close the park's JFK drive to cars and open it to skaters, bikers, and people on foot. The issue went before San Francisco voters earlier this month with dueling ballot measures. The proposition to keep cars out won by 25 percentage points. I think it is the happiest day I've ever experienced in San Francisco. Of course, not everyone felt that way. Some disability rights advocates say the closure makes it harder for them to get to some parts of the park. Howard Chabner, who gets around in a power wheelchair, says most seniors and people with disabilities oppose the car-free configuration. Everyone knows there's a strong anti-car movement. It's anti-car, but it's also anti-people who rely on cars. Elsewhere in more car-dependent cities, temporary road closures didn't have the same groundswell of support, but they may have made residents more open to future changes. Most of us only know what we know. Carol Coletta is president of the nonprofit Memphis River Parks Partnership. She says a short-lived experiment closing the city's Riverside Drive helped people imagine something different. Once you see it, then you go, well, wait, that's not impossible. Uh, for us to do. In D.C., Superintendent Julia Washburn says the change to a car-free road likely would never have happened if not for the pandemic. But she also points to a more gradual cultural shift. The last time the Park Service considered limiting car access was nearly 20 years ago. We were more of a car culture then, Washburn says. There was just strong, like the city didn't want us to do it. There was just strong opposition, and so we didn't. But while that car culture may not have quite such a strong hold now, Washburn says she's not closing any other roads in the park. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Fenston. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Police have arrested a second suspect in the Martha's Vineyard bank robbery. Law enforcement officials revealed yesterday that on Friday in Connecticut, police apprehended Omar Johnson of New Hampshire. Three armed suspects wearing masks robbed a branch of the Rockland Trust Bank in Vineyard Haven earlier this month. After spending several days on Nantucket, President Biden's leaving today. The president and the first lady have been celebrating Thanksgiving on the island with other family members. The Bidens have made a tradition of visiting Nantucket at this time of year for more than four decades. In Worcester today, the Ecotarium will unveil the mysteries of 
1982. The local Lions Club buried a time capsule at the museum's sundial 40 years ago with instructions for it to be opened this year. That opening takes place this morning at 11 o'clock. It's 49 degrees in Boston, some rain likely mainly later today, highs in the low 50s. WBUR supporters include the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Concord's traditional holiday winter market, featuring dozens of regional artists, the first weekend of December, theumbrellaarts.org. Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. And Volante Farms in Needham, with homegrown produce and homemade side dishes and desserts for your holiday table, More info at volantefarms.com. Hi, it's Robin Young. As you give your year-end contributions to organizations that make the world a better place, how about putting WBUR on your list? Give a gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Even your old car can help fuel the journalism that keeps us all moving forward. Learn about all the ways to support WBUR and choose the one that's right for you, please, at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm David Folkenflik. The setting is a country that no longer exists. The time, two generations ago. I'm speaking of Winterland, a new novel with themes that endure. It's the story of a girl anticipating what it is to be a young woman, a girl struggling with aspirations, with her family's expectations, and with her society's demands. Her ankle throbbed in its tape cast. Her lower back was sore. Her arms were quivery. A tendon in her thigh was pulled taut. And her neck was stuck so she couldn't turn her head very well to the right. She leaned against one of the metal supports. Exhaustion was just how it was. It was necessary. Gymnastics, doing well, was her job, her way to serve her country. In Winterland, author Ray Meadows delivers us the tale of a budding gymnast in 1970s Soviet Union, a fictional tale partly inspired by real people and by the secrets that haunted that nation. Meadows immersed herself in Soviet history, but also in the sports of gymnastics in surprising ways, and she joins us now. Ray Meadows, welcome to Weekend Edition. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. What made you turn your gaze to the Soviet Union? You know, I have always been interested in the Soviet Union. When I was in high school, I took Russian for four years, oddly enough. I love gymnastics, and the Soviet golden era of gymnastics during the 70s and 80s was a period that I particularly love, and their style, which kind of combined a classical athleticism and ballet in a way that we've never really seen again. Um, I also, I think, in setting the book in a small, isolated town in the Arctic, it allowed me to create this fictional world that was Soviet, but was also its own little private city. You're talking about Norilska. This is a city inside the Arctic Circle where your main character, Anya, and her father live. What set that apart? 
You know, it's kind of amazing. Norilsk was a city that was built by gulag labor. Basically prisoner or slave labor. Yeah, slave labor. Um, and it, it was carved out of the Arctic. I mean, there was really nothing there other than a vast store of copper, nickel, cadmium, and some other things that are mined. And it's still a, a city that exists today. It has 175,000 people. Um, it's one of the most polluted places in the world. The temperature is below 50 in the winter. And for many months, there's no light at all. The sun never rises. So for me, it was fascinating. I think inhospitable landscapes, I find very interesting in the way that humanity plays itself out with that kind of backdrop. One of the things in the novel that I think we see on different levels is that people are amazingly adaptive and they can adapt to life in a gulag prison camp. They can adapt to a grueling training schedule and also just living in a town where they don't get sunlight for much of the year. To that end, why don't you sketch out a little bit for our listeners more information about Anya, your main character, and the mystery surrounding her mother, who also had a physical expression of artistry that was valued in that culture. Yeah. So the book begins with a bit of a mystery. Anya's mother, who was a former ballet dancer for the Bolshoi, disappears. And I think using ballet for the mom is a is a through line with Anya, who becomes a gymnast in a way for her to connect to her mom a little bit and using that body in an expressive way, but also one that is valued, was valued very highly by the state. There is still a part of Anya that has some agency and that she believes in herself. She loves gymnastics, even though she is kind of thrust in this world where she has no agency as far as what happens to her and her life as a child. There are also characters from Anya's parents' generation. I'm thinking particularly of her father and his girlfriend, and then characters from her grandparents' generation, those who maybe understand the promises, the compromises, and the betrayals of the Soviet system and and the compromises and betrayals that they had to make to survive. Tell us about Vera. She is someone who when the book opens is in her late 70s. And she, when she was younger, she endured 10 years in the gulag camp right outside of Norilsk. And she lost both her son and her husband in that camp. And so she understands just the unbelievably cruel existence that these forced labor camps were and the sacrifices that she made even to just survive. Um, and I think one of the kind of interesting things about Vera is that she stays in Nuril. She doesn't necessarily have to, but she does when she's let out because she doesn't know quite what else to do. She sees in Anya this young child who she takes care of and, and in Anya's mother who she had befriended, something that she wants to protect, a kind of spark of life that she doesn't want to see pushed out like what had happened to her and her generation. What set, during this sort of several decades of real competition, what set Soviet gymnastics apart? I mean, it was truly fascinating. The, the Soviet Union won team gold for eight consecutive Olympics. They had a system that was unrivaled for so long, for decades. It was an all-consuming system that children were taken young from their families and lived in training centers and their whole life, as we see with Anya, their life becomes this push for victory. And I think when you have a system like the Soviet Union that certainly after Stalin believed that athletics were an extension of a, a heroic belief and, and an extension of the political system and showing its success, that the push for gold was kind of non-negotiable. There were real consequences for girls in this system who did not live up to their potential. Uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart, obviously the gymnastics program fell apart 
It was no longer state-sponsored. There was no more money. Um, there are still good, good Russian gymnasts, but it is not at all the same thing. The girls in this book are repeatedly told they'll be washed up by the time they reach their mid to late teens. Yet you plunged back into gymnastics as you wrote this book. You were in your 50s. What was that like? I mean, my kids will roll their eyes because <laughs> at my love of gymnastics. But I found so much joy at doing gymnastics in middle age. It's hard to really explain. I never thought that I could A, that I could do it and B, that I could continue to get better at this age. My daughter is a competitive gymnast and I could watch practice for hours. I, I think it's it's beautiful. And, and to be able to still participate, I will do it as long, long as I can. Don't be fooled. I feel bad most of the time. My body hurts all the time, but it's really fun. That's fascinating, though. I mean, having immersed yourself in this world, how has it changed the way you look at competitive sports, especially you just told us that your daughter does competitive gymnastics? Yeah, no, I know. And I have such a high regard for athletes who push to such a level because I know what it entails. I mean, in my daughter's case, I'm tall. She's tall. She's not cut out to be at the elite level. And that also requires a sacrifice that I was not willing to do. And I don't think she is either to kind of give up a life. And, and, and as we see with Anya, even you can't live a normal life and pursue gymnastics at that level. It has to be all consuming. It has to be um, but I have such incredible respect and regard for athletes at this level and particularly gymnasts because I know how much it costs the body to be able to do the kind of things that they do. That's Ray Meadows sticking the landing. Her new novel is Winterland. Ray Meadows, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, just a college student, Alex Giannascoli was lauded by a major music publication as the Internet's secret best songwriter. That was back in 2014, and the indie artist is most definitely no longer a secret, but he is still something of an enigma. He performs as Alex G, which kind of cloaks him in a bit of mystery. He's also known for being a musician who doesn't talk all that explicitly about, well, his music. So I wanted to warm him up and started the interview with this question. Why did Alex G name his new album, God Save the Animals? It was a lyric that I had used in a song I was working on that didn't end up making the record. I just really liked the way it sounded. How does it make you feel when you hear those words? I guess it's hard to, like, pin down what it's saying whether it's hopeful or cynical, you know, and I like that it just kind of floats in between cynical and hopeful. You've got dogs, right? Yeah, I have a dog. All right, what music do you play for your dog? Oh, no, he doesn't like music that much. He, he leaves the room if I stop playing. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're rehearsing or you're producing something, he scampers out? Yeah, I think he likes the quiet. I guess he likes to hear what's going on outside, so... I want to uh, play a little bit of No Bitterness. That song, there's something hopeful about it. There's something peppy. And then there's really, from my perspective anyway, something that takes a dystopian turn.
what's going on with that dissonance for you? Some of the lyrics, you say, I don't want a good time. I open my mind, and if I cried, I really would like it. When I see your cell, I cover my eyes, and it's a lie. You never die. Oh, you know what? I uh, So that's actually... I've seen those lyrics online. That's actually not the lyrics. It's uh, And it's not your fault, because I didn't write it on the record, but it's... um. Uh-huh. Tell me, I heard yeah. the song and then I went out and looked at the lyrics, but I didn't match them up in real time because, of course, when you're listening, you're just listening. Yeah. Tell me. I give it one more try and open my mind. If I could, I really would. You want to see yourself. I cover my eyes. It's a lie. You never die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then then it goes off. So is that is that more uh, kind of the innocence of playfulness of childhood or is there something else? No bitterness, as the song is titled? Or is there something else there toward the end? That mantra at the beginning, like, my teacher's a child, is self-explanatory. That part at the end, I was just thinking about, like, taking a leap of faith and being, like, like just being, like, I'm part of something bigger, like, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a thing that I don't really have concrete ideas about, but I was just throwing words at the wall to try and come close to You felt to your it. way there. Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's talk about things that that feel serious. What's with the low voice on SDOS? What convinced you to drop your voice like that? Um, you know, I was just really into that song "Low Rider" by War. And so that's why I had the gyro and the all the percussion and stuff, and it has that really low, low rider voice. So I wanted to make a song like in that palette. Did you have to play around to get the voice just the way you wanted? I mean, in a number of songs, uh, it can soar high, it can go low, it can get distorted. You can have one effect or another. How much do you have to to toy with it to get it where you want? A lot. I was trying to make it low just using this pitch shifter on GarageBand, and it wasn't quite right. Mm -hmm. And then I messed around with this idea where I recorded it really fast. I sped the tempo up really fast and recorded it and then slowed the song back down to its normal tempo, and that was how I got it right. You know, and I got it to be as boomy and uh, demonic as it sounds. I know you don't have all the the equipment with you, but is there a song or, or a riff that you remember in which you kind of had to play around with it just vocally a little bit? Can you give us a feel for what that's like? I think most of the experimentation comes after the recording process, but maybe Mission is one where I was messing around with, like, I was asleep like a child. That's how it is, like, if I just sing it. But then uh, I was messing around with getting really close to the mic and, like, gritting my teeth be like, I was asleep like a child. Like, do stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Did that sound different to you? Totally. Yeah, so just, like, make trying to make it grittier by getting closer or farther or, like, gritting my teeth. But but that's, like, a rare instance. I, I think most of the time it was just... Through the tech. Yeah, exactly.
you're candid about the fact that there's a, a bit of a, to be fair, a discomfort level talking about unraveling a little bit what you've done in creating these songs and these lyrics. How much should music just be listened to and not talked about? I don't know. It depends on the music. I think there's people who have really concrete things to say, and it's um, really enlightening to hear what they have to say about their music, but I consider myself more of like an impressionistic writer. It's like if I was drawing an abstract picture and then trying to explain it, you know, it would do no service to anybody. And and that's sort of what talking about my music feels like because I think it's about what you get from the product and not what you get from me outside of the product, you know. So when you listen to other artists, maybe people who have influenced you, do you take it at face value? Do you absorb it? Do you listen to it? Or do you find yourself kind of analyzing it and pulling it apart after the fact? When I was younger and when I think music moved me the most was when I was younger. I didn't know how it worked and it would just blow me away. Just all the stuff that was happening and like, wow, why did they make this decision? Why did they make this decision? Like, I have no idea. And then now that I'm older and I sort of see behind the curtain a little bit more, I can still appreciate the craft, but I think it's like less exciting when you see how stuff works a little bit more, like who's drawing from what, like, when you know how stuff works, the magic is gone. I've been talking with Alex G. His new album is called God Save the Animals. Alex, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Infinite futures become a single past. Everyone whimpers, nobody This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm David Folkenflik. B.J. Lederman writes our theme music. Thanks so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for including 90.9 WBUR in your Thanksgiving weekend. When you want to check in or need a break, we'll be here with the news and more. Listen anytime on the radio and anywhere on the WBUR app. It is coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues, and it's 49 degrees in Boston. Some rain likely, mainly late in the day. Highs today in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Quinta Brunson on breathing life back into the TV sitcom with Abbott Elementary. Abbott is so much inspired by everyday people. I find 
people who just wake up in the morning and go to their job. I find that to be the most triumphant. Quinta Brunson, next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Our news in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm David Folkenflik. Good morning. NPR's Mara Liason fills us in on Congress's lame duck session. ESPN's Jeremy Schapp tells us he's no betting man, but offers this World Cup take. Would I be shocked if Iran beats the U.S.? No. I think it'll be a hard-fought game. And I'm still thinking that the U.S. will squeak by. And we'll have a tribute to the late Irene Cara. Plus, the puzzle. It's Sunday, November 27th. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Protests against China's COVID-19 lockdown rules are spreading. The protests began Friday after a deadly fire at an apartment building in the western city of Urumqi. Ten people were killed and angry protesters say COVID restrictions were a factor in the deaths. The building was under a lockdown at the time. NPR's Emily Fang is keeping tabs on the protests from her base in Taiwan. It just seems like people are so angry and they're so fed up with nearly three years now of COVID controls that... The dam is just broken. And these protests are happening all across China. And they started because people were getting together. They're holding these candlelight vigils to commemorate the people who were killed in the Urumqi fire. But those protests have now spread from Urumqi and Shanghai to the streets and university campuses all over the country, including in the capital, Beijing. Videos posted online show a protest in Shanghai showing protesters calling on President Xi Jinping to step down. Forecasters predict a slightly colder winter than last year as heating costs are expected to rise. From member station WHYY in Philadelphia, Susan Phillips reports that home heating oil costs are expected to jump especially high. Those who use home heating oil could pay about 45 percent more this year compared to last winter. That's according to the Federal Energy Information Administration. Most of those customers are concentrated in the Northeast. A larger percentage of homes use natural gas for heat, and those costs are also rising by an estimated 30 percent this year. This month, President Biden announced $4.5 billion to help lower heating costs for residents this winter. For NPR News, I'm Susan Phillips in Philadelphia. Early voting got underway this weekend in Georgia's December 6th Senate runoff election between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. Early voting opened yesterday after Republicans lost several court challenges. One week after five people were murdered at an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs, a shooting is still rippling across the state. Colorado Public Radio's Stina Sieg reports. At least two vigils this weekend are in western Colorado, a region dotted with small, conservative towns, including Delta, home to about 9,000 people. 
That's where Javi Sines, a local trans man, will be leading a remembrance Sunday evening with fellow members of the LGBTQ community. We are not going to shut up. We are not going back into the closet. We are here. We've always been here. We're good people. And it's time that you just let us live. Sign says some people have told him they're scared to make this public stand. And that, he says, is why this vigil is needed. For NPR News, I'm Stina Sieg in Grand Junction, Colorado. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Today is expected to be the busiest travel day at Logan Airport in Boston following Thanksgiving. In addition to lots of traffic in the air, Massport Aviation Director Ed Frenny says lots of cars will be headed to the airport to drop people off or pick them up. Give yourself some time. Use the cell phone lot. Uh, go on our app, our FlyLogan app. You can find out uh, when the airplane is arriving so you can time yourself if you're here to pick people up. Frenny says the busiest times at Logan this weekend will be tonight and tomorrow morning. The MBTA also is providing additional Silver Line service to and from the airport today. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health is offering $75 gift cards to people getting their COVID-19 vaccinations over the next month. The program's in effect only at some clinics. At those clinics that get boosted, gift cards will be given to residents getting a first or second dose of the vaccine or a vaccine booster. You can check which clinics are offering the gift cards at the state's health department website. Apple CEO Tim Cook has visited people hurt in last week's car crash at the Apple Store in Hingham. The crash killed one man and injured at least 19 people. On Friday, Cook and another high-ranking Apple official met with survivors at South Shore Hospital in Weymouth. The Boston Globe says as of Thursday, several people remained hospitalized. In Boston tomorrow, the Copley Square tree lighting ceremony is set for 5 p.m. The event will feature the Boston Children's Chorus and musicians from the Boston Pops and Berkeley. In sports, tonight at the Garden, the Celtics host the Wizards. It's 52 degrees in Boston, some rain likely later, temperatures in the low 50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit focused on our most pressing sustainability issues, including a green economy. More at ceres.org/slash WBUR. Moonbox Productions, Tony Award-winning play Torch Song, opening December 2nd, Boston Center for the Arts Roberts Theater. Tickets at bostontheaterscene.org. And Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm David Folkenflik in Briasha Roscoe. Okay, the tryptophan may still be bouncing around your body, but we're about to leave the long Thanksgiving weekend behind. In Washington, that means Congress returns to work with an agenda defined by a phrase we're going to hear a lot these next few weeks, lame duck session. NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyson joins me now to talk about what that means and what's ahead. Morning, Mara. Hi, David. The lame duck session is the last gasp of Democrats controlling both chambers. How much unfinished business do they intend to take up? They have a lot of unfinished business. 
First of all, they've got to keep the government open past December 16th, so they have to pass a big funding bill. They would really like to raise the debt ceiling and get that out of the way early, so when it reaches its limits sometime next year, the U.S. doesn't default on its debts. That's going to be pretty hard. In the Senate, Democrats want to codify same-sex marriage. They want to pass the Electoral Count Act to make it harder to overturn a free and fair election. In other words, to make sure that no January 6ths will ever happen again. And on their wish list, they would like to codify Roe versus Wade. But in the Senate, that would take 10 Republican votes, and it doesn't look like they have those. Pretty full plate for a pretty short period. I must say Republicans this fall ran on relatively scarce specifics in their campaigns. What are their actual priorities? Well, their first priority is to elect a speaker. And with their tiny little single-digit majority, that's going to be very hard. Uh, The smaller the margin, the harder it will be for Kevin McCarthy to get the 218 votes he needs to be speaker. He can only afford to lose a couple. The other big priority for Republicans with their new House majority is not passing legislation as much as it is investigations. You're going to hear a lot about Hunter Biden's laptop. There might be impeachment proceedings against President Biden and other administration officials as well. Well... I guess, impeachment aside, what does the prospect of divided government mean for President Biden and and his agenda? Well, for all presidents who have lost complete control of Congress in a midterm, it means that Biden's legislative agenda pretty much grinds to a halt. That's why Democrats pushed so hard before the midterms to pass the president's priorities, like the infrastructure bill or the climate and drug pricing bill. Biden can still get his judges confirmed. He still has a Democratic majority in the Senate. He'll try to get bipartisan legislation through a divided Congress, but with a Republican House, that will be much more difficult. But also politically, he's going to be trying to make the House Republicans a foil. And to the extent they conduct a lot of investigations, they seem to ignore Americans' kitchen table concerns, he's going to try to point that out, to make them look as extreme as possible and out of the mainstream. Remember, he said in his press conference right after the midterms, about when he was asked about Republican investigations, he said, well, I can't control what they're going to do. All I can do is try to make life better for the American people. When Congress draws to a close, so will the work of the January 6th committee. What should we expect from that investigation? We can expect a very big report, could be a thousand pages long. It'll focus on former President Donald Trump's role on January 6th. This is the top priority for uh, Republican Liz Cheney. She lost her race. She's not going to be in Congress after January. She's the vice chair of the committee. And she has equated the preservation of American democracy with ensuring that Trump is never president again. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, some Republicans have said that when the House control flips in January, they want to conduct a different kind of January 6th investigation. They want to investigate how they believe Democrats failed to protect the Capitol on January 6th. Mm-hmm. And one last thing in the minute we have left. These midterm results defied both parties' expectations. What's your one big takeaway from Election Day 2022? My one big takeaway is that America is not just deeply divided, it's evenly divided. It seems that in the midterms, the blue states like Michigan and Pennsylvania got bluer, red states like Ohio and Florida got redder, and the battleground, meaning those states where the margins were decided by tiny little points true toss-up states. There are really only four of them, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. And that means Hmm. the 2024 elections could be fought on those four states. They only have 43 electoral votes between them. So I think a deeply divided, evenly divided electorate is a recipe for instability.
That's NPR's Mara Liason. Mara, thanks so much. You're welcome. It is a fraught and consequential moment for the media empire built by Rupert Murdoch. It is attempting to unravel its alliance with former President Donald Trump. The Murdochs are seeking to reunite their TV properties with their newspaper properties. Think of Fox News with The Wall Street Journal and The New York Post. They are defending Fox News against a pair of multi-billion dollar lawsuits for defamation. And they're figuring out who leads after the 91-year-old Rupert Murdoch finally departs the scene. The Australian journalist Patty Manning has written the first full biography of Lachlan Murdoch. That's Rupert's elder son. Manning joins us now from Sydney, Australia. Patty, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. Lachlan Murdoch is the executive chairman and CEO of Fox Corp, the co-chairman of News Corp. What should we know about how he approaches leading these huge companies? Well, he's a very different media proprietor than his father. Lachlan, while he is clearly the designated successor and uh, has his father's blessing to take over what will probably be, although it's not certain, a merged Fox and News Corporation, I think he's not the same editorial uh, interventionist that his father and grandfather were. He's not the kingmaker politically that they have been. And he's more of an investor, I think, than an operator. He's kind of a little bit more hands-off. How conservative is Lachlan Murdoch? When we think about Rupert Murdoch, it's one of the first things that comes to mind to Americans. What about the son? He describes his own politics as socially liberal but economically conservative. And he's always described his politics that way since he was uh, in his 20s. And he was, you know, sort of very open-minded. He had a, a tattoo. He had a spiky haircut. He was a rock climber. He had lots of sort of gay mates. And he looked like the next generation of the Murdoch family would be different. But fast forward into now he's in his 50s. And Lachlan, you know, his biggest political donation was to the Senate leadership fund of uh, Mitch McConnell. And, you know, more than anyone, McConnell is, you know, responsible. He's the architect of the conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court. And I think post Roe, it's pretty hard to square that kind of donation uh, with describing yourself as socially liberal. I don't think that washes. And yet we've heard in recent months you know, Lachlan will say publicly that he thinks of Fox as a center-right news organization, and he's signaled privately he wants to move past Trump. Yet still, Fox News stars have been given extraordinary leeway to stake out extreme positions, even as they are currently, anyhow, acknowledging Trump's weaknesses and failings. Yeah. And so Lachlan defends that in terms of free speech. And, you know, this is the kind of libertarian side, I suppose. He believes that the rest of the mainstream media skews to the left. So the way he frames it, you know, he sort of hates groupthink. And he says that quality of debate is lifted by a diversity of opinion. And if everyone was singing from the same sort of liberal song sheet, you've got a, a lower quality debate. So let's talk about these defamation lawsuits. These involve lies promoting then-President Donald Trump's false claims that he was cheated in the 2020 elections. They were propagated over major Fox News shows. How big of a threat do they represent? Oh, I, I think there's no doubt that they are a serious threat. And I think I wouldn't be surprised to see both Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch deposed before Christmas. I think it would be overstating it to say that the lawsuits represent a existential threat to Fox. 
but nonetheless they are extremely serious. There's also another threat that sort of stems from the uh, big lie defamation cases, which is that behind that sits a threat to Lachlan's control of the business from his siblings. I was very firmly told uh, by representatives of one of the siblings that the siblings are determined to reassert control of the Murdoch family businesses and, quote, do it in a way that enhances democracies around the world rather than undermining them. That really cuts to the chase. That's a serious threat to Lachlan's control of the business once, once Rupert passes, and it stems from their coverage of the big lie in the wake of the 2020 election. Lachlan moved his family back to your hometown, to Sydney, during the pandemic, and he's typically found there, although he's running these huge corporations based in New York. He even returned a few days ago after dropping in on the World Cup in Qatar, which is being broadcast by Fox, at least here in the U.S. What do you make of his attachment to his father's native country? Well, it is longstanding, and, you know, he has joked in interviews in the past that he he has this American accent. He wished he could get rid of it. You know, he loves Australia. He grew up in New York, but he loves Australia. And I do wonder if it's really sustainable for him to run uh, such a powerful business as, you know, Fox and News Corporation from the other side of the world. I, and I think it also points up a kind of disconnect between why do the Murdochs think that it's better to bring their family up in Australia? Well, perhaps it's because there's strong health, public health measures. Maybe it's because you have gun laws here that are, you know, banned sales of semi-automatic and fully automatic weapons. Maybe it's we don't have the same degree of polarisation in politics in Australia that you seem to be seeing in the United States. But, you know, I think there's a disconnect between Lachlan's decision to base his family in Australia and the kind of messages that Fox's primetime anchors put out every night. I've been speaking with Patty Manning. He's author of The Successor, The High Stakes Life of Lachlan Murdoch. Patty Manning, thanks. Thanks so much, David. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 1018 and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, WBUR's Beth Healy reports on title insurance and how it is a cash cow for lawyers. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive PhD in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill. Now open at 71 Charles Street. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Voters in Georgia have begun casting early ballots this weekend in the December 6th Senate runoff election between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. 
Early voting opened yesterday after Republicans lost to several court challenges. French President Emmanuel Macron will be in Washington later this week. He is to visit President Biden at the White House for a state visit Thursday. Macron is also to pay a visit to New Orleans to celebrate the city's French heritage. And online shoppers set a record on Black Friday, according to estimates from Adobe Analytics. Online sales totaled more than $9.1 billion, despite inflation concerns. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm David Folkenflik. 32 nations are fighting for the ultimate prize in soccer, the FIFA World Cup. This year, Qatar is playing host, and one week into the tournament, the big story is the upsets. Three powerhouse nations, Argentina, Germany, and England, have struggled against underdogs, including... Team USA. Jeremy Schapp is an anchor and correspondent at ESPN who has covered the World Cup and soccer for years. He joins us now to talk about it. Jeremy, welcome. Good morning, David. Well, what a week we've just had. I think we have to begin with Argentina. You know, it's one of the heavy favorites to win it all. It's likely Lionel Messi's last World Cup, and yet it lost to Saudi Arabia. How safe is it to call that one of the biggest upsets of all time? Oh, this is a big upset, Dave. You know, Argentina is one of those nations that is World Cup royalty. They won the cup in 78. They won it again in 1986. They lost the final uh, eight years ago, two tournaments ago in Brazil to Germany. And in Lionel Messi, they have arguably the greatest player of all time. But he has not won a World Cup. And so this is going to be the last chance we expect for Leo Messi. And then they go out and they play Saudi Arabia, which is uh, not a soccer powerhouse. Uh, But this is a massive upset. So among those teams that have been dominant is Germany. 2014 champion, perennial contender, went up against that game against Japan a few days ago. And then things came crashing down. Japan won two to one. You see that one coming? No, I don't ever see anything coming. That's why I don't do any gambling. This is a different order of magnitude than Saudi Arabia, Argentina. You know, there's the famous line from Gary Lineker, football is a game where you play for 22 men, kick a ball around for 90 minutes, and, and at the end, Germany wins. <laughs> you know, that, that's the cliche, but it's, it's a cliche rooted in a certain truth. And so to lose to Japan is an upset. But again, it would be a much bigger upset if this were the knockout stage. Let's think about a game involving England. They have what's considered a golden generation team right now, semifinalists in the last World Cup back in 2018, and they could not beat the really green, the really young U.S. team. How did the Americans hold them off and play them to a tie? You know, there is a lot of talent there. They are obviously... um, up and down the roster player for player, bigger stars than the U.S. 
The U.S., though, played very well, created a lot of chances, and got this 0-0 draw against this English team. So there's so much to take away that is positive for the U.S. Jeremy Shep, you've covered many iterations of this U.S. men's team uh, since the 94 Cup. Stressing the positive for a moment, how did we get to today? How has the team managed to progress to the place where it is able to play, you know, a top tier team like England to a draw and vie to progress to the next round? The U.S. did not qualify for the World Cup for 40 years, from 1950 to 1990. And in 1990, you know, we went to Italy and we were just happy to be there. And then we were the host the next time around and reached the knockout stage and beat Colombia along the way. And in 98, the team was terrible and finished last in the tournament in France. Four years later, you know, the team reached the quarterfinals. And then it's been a back and forth, one step forward, two steps back. Last time, of course, the U.S. didn't qualify at all for the World Cup, which was shocking. And in terms of the players on this U.S. roster now who are playing with big club teams in Europe, who have talent, it's a whole different world than it was 30 years ago. So looking ahead to the match against Iran. And what's to come? If the U.S. doesn't win, it's out of the tournament. Given the week we've just witnessed, how safe is it to make any predictions? It's not safe at all. There's a feeling among American fans always like, we're the U.S. We've been growing. We've been growing our domestic league for the last quarter century. All these reasons, like we should beat Iran, which was the feeling in 1998 when we played Iran in France and we lost. Would I be shocked if Iran beats the U.S.? No. Iran is tough. I think it'll be a hard-fought game. And I'm still thinking that the U.S. will squeak by. That's Jeremy Albert Schapp of ESPN. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. I got the middle name. Thank you, David Bernard Folkenflik. The Dead Sea is ancient. The history of its salty therapeutic waters goes back to the Bible. But this natural wonder is rapidly drying up even changing the land around it. NPR's Daniel Estrin recently took to the water to explore what is being lost and what it will take to prevent more destruction. The Dead Sea is magic. It is the lowest exposed place on Earth. It is 10 times saltier than the ocean, so you don't sink in it, you float. The mud and the waters are full of minerals, great therapeutic for your skin, but the Dead Sea is dying. The lake level is dropping four feet every single year. So we've taken this rare boat ride on the Dead Sea to see some of these changes. You've seen a living disaster in front of your eyes, you know, and and since the sea is receding so fast, you know, you see it. It's not that there's a change that you don't see. No, you see it. Jackie Benzaken has special Israeli permission to give boat tours here. After all, it's a border zone and shared with Jordan. It's hard for aquatic life to exist in the salty waters, hence the name Dead Sea. You see this thing that sticks out there? When you go up, seven years ago, I used to tie my boat, my boat here. Seven years ago? Wow. He's pointing to a spot that's now dry land high above us. It's shocking to see a four-foot drop every single year. The cause is that in the last several decades, the freshwater sources that feed into the Dead Sea have been diverted for drinking water and irrigation. We are living in the Middle East, okay, so there's not a lot of water. Also, Israeli and Jordanian companies pump out and evaporate Dead Sea water to harvest its rich minerals for export. The Salty Sea is receding so quickly, 
it leaves behind stunning salt pillars along the shores. So it's, it's beautiful, but it actually tells you that there's something not so beautiful happening. Of course, of course. It's, it's not the natural changes. It's a rapid changes that the environment can't adapt to. It's too fast, you know? You get a sense of how an entire landscape can change when a lake is dried up. Cavities along the shore open up into sinkholes. So we're just looking at, it looks like this huge crater that has yeah, just that's collapsed. A that's a sinkhole. We stop at a beach that's been condemned because a sinkhole swallowed up the parking lot. Here are some abandoned beach chairs. Oh, here's a little mini barbecue set. Farmers have also abandoned their watermelon and basil farms along the shores. We will just walk down here. There is a big sinkhole. Dead Sea researcher Yael Kiro from the Weizmann Institute of Science shows me a part of the main road alongside the Dead Sea that collapsed four years ago. Really, really careful and maybe... Um... Wow, wow, wow. Oh my gosh. This road just sinks into itself. It's like the earth has opened up and swallowed it. It breaks my heart. There's just so much destruction. This is just a direct result of the lake level drop. I don't know, it just makes me sad. Climate change makes this worse. The area is getting hotter, rainfall is dropping, populations are growing, and there's not enough water for drinking and irrigation, let alone for saving the Dead Sea. There are many proposals to rehabilitate the Dead Sea, like filling it with desalinated water from the Red Sea, or rehabilitating the Jordan River, the Dead Sea's main water source, or trying to compel the companies mining the Dead Sea to help pay for its rehabilitation. But there's been no action. And this is so sad because the, uh, the solutions is so not uh, easy and very, very expensive now, unfortunately. Galit Cohen is the director general of the Israeli Environmental Protection Ministry. If you want to, uh, to bring back water to the Dead Sea, it means desalination water all around. And this is very, very expensive, of course, and not all the uh, countries around us can uh, pay for that amount of the money. Israel and Jordan are former enemies with chilly relations. They did recently sign a deal where Jordan will give Israel solar energy and Israel will give desalinated drinking water to Jordan, which is parched. But there's still no action plan to save these biblical bodies of water they share, the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. King Abdullah of Jordan spoke about this at the UN Climate Change Conference in Egypt. The Dead Sea and the sacred Jordan River are treasures of the past, and legacies for our future. Our generation must not be the broken link. Along the shores, I meet Shay Rabinow of Binghamton University, who's hiking around the Dead Sea and writing a book about it. He just finished hiking the Jordan side. What we've heard is a lot of pessimism, right? People on the Jordanian side have said, our lives have gotten worse. It seems like most people are accepting that the level of this part of the sea may drop another 100 meters, 150 meters in the future. That could take over 100 years. Some researchers are optimistic that as the dead sea level drops more and more, an urgency will grow to save it with desalinated water. The question is how long the natural wonder that's existed for millions of years will keep disappearing four feet a year. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, The Dead Sea. It already feels like we don't have enough time, but the world will soon lose something called the leap second. That decision was made at the 27th General Conference on Weights and Measures earlier this month in Paris. 
So let's drill down on leap seconds and why we're getting rid of them. The man who can lay down some knowledge, that's NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Hey, Jeff. Hi, David. So I want to ask you the first question here, which is, I mean, have you ever wondered where seconds come from? This weekend, I'm assuming pretty much from the stovetop, but I think you mean something else. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, the official second that we all use here in the U.S. It turns out that it's made in Boulder, Colorado at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They have more than 20 atomic clocks spread across the campus. And then there's this one windowless room where they take all those clock signals, all the ticks, they bring them together, average them out, and in the corners, this little flashing green light. You're seeing the seconds as they're made, and every flash is the beginning of the second in the U.S. That's Jeff Sherman. He's the physicist in charge, and he was showing me around actually earlier this month. His second is broadcast across the U.S., and also it's used to make the global second. It's averaged together with 80 other countries' seconds. This is all agreed to by the 1875 Treaty of the Meter. So where do leap seconds come in? Right. So the Earth's rotation changes over time. It's slowing down ever so slightly because of the moon's gravitational pull. The upshot is, every few years, give or take, the International Bureau of Weights and Measures in France has to add a leap second. In other words, for one minute of one hour of one day, the clock counts an extra second. So if that keeps us in sync with the Earth... Why would you want to get rid of it? Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense, right? It kind of helps us all keep in sync with our planet. But it turns out the seconds sent out by the world's labs get used in a lot of other ways you might not expect. So, for example, your cell phone is running off that time. So is the network that your cell phone uses and GPS. Underneath all the modern conveniences that we like and enjoy is infrastructure like this uh, keeping synchronization across distances. And the timing really matters, especially for things like computer servers that run the internet and GPS. They need very precise time. And if you insert rando seconds into the system, it messes things up. Totally. That's exactly what's going down. So in the past, leap seconds have taken down airplane reservation systems. In fact, tech companies really don't like the leap second. It just is a mess for them to deal with. And the U.S. government actually agrees. As computers and GPS and all these other systems become more precise and more a part of our lives, putting these random seconds in is just starting to cause more problems than it solves. But what do we lose by getting rid of it? What's the unintended consequence here? Well, astronomers are going to lose out because Earth's rotation will no longer be matched with the official time scale. But other than that, there's not that much that will change. It turns out they're still going to sync up the Earth with our clocks. They'll just do it once every hundred years, maybe by inserting, say, a leap minute. And for now, leap seconds are sticking around. The new system won't be in effect until... 2035. So if you want to catch a leap second, you can. We've been hearing from NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Jeff, thanks. Thank you, David. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Buying a home comes with a host of expenses at closing. One of the most costly and confusing? 
title insurance. It's lightly regulated in many states. An investigation by member station WBUR found that the person selling the insurance makes most of the money, often without telling you. Here's the story from Beth Healy. She's a senior investigative reporter at the station. Peter Ott and his partner bought their first home in Boston this year. Ott's a numbers guy in the insurance business, so he had questions. First, it cost a pretty modest $200 for the title search itself. That's to prove your legal right to own a property and make sure nobody else can say it's theirs. So on the face of it, I'm thinking, oh, okay, that is the amount that it costs to do a title search. Cool. Then Ott paid his real estate lawyer about $1,400 to handle other title work and represent him. But there was more, insurance on the title. They were required to buy title coverage for the bank that wrote the mortgage. Then their lawyer strongly urged them to buy a second policy for themselves. And I also see my lender's title insurance amount. And I believe if I scroll down, I can see my owner's title insurance amount. So roughly those two, it's almost $5,000. The lawyer said the homebuyer's policy was optional in case a legal fight comes up later over the title, like a tax lien on the seller or a dispute over property lines. But as Ott and many others have experienced, there's pressure to purchase it. And your real estate attorney is telling you, we highly suggest this, you know, here's the risk that you're taking on if you don't purchase it. Why wouldn't you buy it? Ott wasn't about to argue. He signed the papers. But later, he asked his lawyer how much she had earned on the title insurance. The answer was 80% or about $3,800. It turns out that's typical across most of the country. Big insurers pay lawyers and title agents the majority of the money charged to the home buyer. There are very few insurance claims paid out for bad titles. I mean, it's a scam, not just in Massachusetts, it's a scam nationwide. That's Bruce Marks. He runs a nonprofit that helps people get mortgages called NACA, or Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America. He says the big payouts to lawyers and agents that are buried in title insurance drive up costs for consumers. You know, they get so much of what I call a kickback. You know, you can call it a fee, but I believe it's a kickback. Federal regulators didn't help matters when they dropped a requirement for lawyers and title agents to disclose how much they make on insurance fees. In a half dozen states, including Massachusetts, title rates are not regulated at all. When it comes to protecting consumers, Iowa is the one state that stands out. They outlawed title insurance companies decades ago. Instead, the state offers coverage at a low cost and essentially guarantees a clean title. Here's Dylan Malone, director of the Iowa program. In a residential transaction, we charge a flat rate premium of $175. $175. And yet, in the other 49 states, a multi-billion dollar industry is built around the possibility that a title problem could be missed or could crop up later. For most home purchases today, title searches are done online, and an examiner can do one in a few hours. Real estate lawyers say the insurance fees are a way to help pay for their work when title searches are more complex. Noel DiCarlo is an expert on titles at the Real Estate Bar Association in Boston. The reality is if attorneys weren't getting a portion of the title insurance, our fees for representing borrowers and lenders would be significantly higher. But homebuyers don't know that. And so far, regulators have done little to help educate them or bring down the cost of the insurance. For NPR News, I'm Beth Healy in Boston. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. To help encourage people in Massachusetts to get vaccinated against COVID-19, the State Department of Public Health is now offering $75 gift cards at some clinics for the next month. It is part of the state's vaccine equity initiative. The DPH is focusing on communities where vaccine and booster rates are lowest. At participating clinics, the gift cards will be given to residents getting a first or second dose of the vaccine or a vaccine booster. You can check which clinics are offering the gift cards at the state health department's website. In Boston tomorrow, the Copley Square tree lighting ceremony is set for 5 p.m. The event will feature the Boston Children's Chorus and musicians from the Boston Pops and Berkeley. It is 50 degrees in Boston, some rain likely mainly late in the day, and temperatures today in the low 50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. And the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com slash careers. I'm Deepa Fernandes. As you make year-end contributions to organizations that play an important role in your life and have deep impact in our community, put WBUR on your list. Support the reporting and storytelling that keep us all informed and connected. And as our thanks, get a year of the New Yorker at a 40% savings. This is a limited time offer. Start your monthly gift at wbur.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm David Folkenflik, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Dave. Welcome back. Thanks. Why don't you remind us of last week's challenge for this show? Yes, it came from Henry Picciotto of Berkeley, California. I said, name a branch of scientific study, drop the last letter, then rearrange the remaining letters to name two subjects of that study. What branch of science is it? And it is astronomy. Drop the Y. You can rearrange the remaining letters to spell star and moon. We received nearly 1,500 responses. The winner is Kevin Gorton of San Lorenzo, California. Congratulations, Kevin, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. How long have you been playing the puzzle? I've been listening on and off for the past 20 years. 20 years. And what do you do when you're not playing the puzzle? I'm retired, so I uh, play a little bocce. I go hiking with my girlfriend, and I've got a yard to take care of. All right. Well, do you want, Kevin, the payoff for those 20 years? Are you ready to play the puzzle? I am ready. All right. Take it away, Will. All right, Kevin and Dave, you can play along. I have brought a game of categories based on the word jokes. 
For each category I give, name something in it starting with each of the letters J, O, K, E, and S. For example, if the category were four-letter traditional boys' names, you might say John, Owen, Kurt, Evan, and Stan. Any answer that works is okay, and you can give the answers in any order. Here's number one, places in Florida. Could be cities, could be other things, just places in Florida. The Everglades? Uh, Everglades is a good E, yes. Orlando? Orlando is an O. I'm not There's a big up. city starting with J. I think the biggest. Oh, it's not Miami or St. Petersburg. Um, well, that'll get you an S. Uh, that's true, St. Petersburg, St. yes. St. Petersburg, thank you very much. So all you need is a J and a K. Uh, for yeah. K, think of those islands that go off the uh, southern oh, tip of Oh, Key West. Key West is good. Kennedy Space Center would also have worked. And all you need is a J. And there's one that starts with the name of a U.S. president. James. Not that John one. Last name. Jacksonville. Jacksonville. You got it. Here's your second category. Birds. Uh, J. Yes. Oreo. Oreo is good. There are lots of S's and several good E's. Think of our national symbol. Oh, eagle. Eagle is an E, also egret and emu. How about an S? Swallow. Swallow, yeah. And then K is the toughest one. I have three. A kiwi? A kiwi, I didn't even think of that. I had kingfisher, kestrel, and kite, so there you go. Your next category is highway signs. Stop. Stop is good. Uh, junction. Junction. Good. That's a tough one. Good. O, K, and E. Off-ramp. Off-ramp. Okay, I'll give you that. I was going for one way, a K and an E. There's a very common one on a interstate where you're coming up to an interchange and what it would say. Exit. Exit, yes. And all you need is a K now. I have two, but they're very basically the same thing. Uh, if there's two-way traffic and an arrow points you... One direction or the other? Keep right. Right, keep right, keep left, either one. And here's your last category, spaces on a Monopoly board. Spaces. When was the last time you played Monopoly? Years ago. Uh, jail. Jail, that was good, yeah. Um, isn't there a Kentucky Avenue? Uh, Kentucky Avenue, excellent. And uh, Empire, Empire, uh, no. Not an Empire, no, but there is a utility, starting with E. Oh, electric. Electric company is good. All you need is an O and an S. Oriental. Oriental Avenue, and all you need is an S. There's four of them. One of them is one of the railroads. Oh, states. I was thinking a short line. Good job, short boy. Short line, very good. Boom, boom, boom. That's a great job, Kevin. How do you feel? Uh, I feel better, Will. Uh, Dave, thanks. So for playing our puzzle today, you're going to get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Kevin, what member station do you listen to? I listen to KQED. KQED. That's Kevin Gorton of San Lorenzo, California. Thanks for playing the puzzle. Thanks very much. Okay, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Alan Hochbaum of Duluth, Georgia. What common eight-letter noun can be shortened in two ways, using either its first three letters or its last four letters. And the answer is a familiar item. So again, a common eight-letter noun that can be shortened by using either the first three letters 
or the last four letters. It's an everyday item. What is it? When you have the answer to what it is, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, December 1st at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Don't forget to include a telephone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we're going to give you a call, and assuming you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle letter of the New York Times and our own puzzle master here at Weekend Edition, and that's Will Shorts. Thanks, Will. Thanks a lot, Dave. Hip-hop is everywhere in art, fashion, politics. Born in the South Bronx in the early 1970s, pioneers like Fab Five Freddy, Grandmaster Flash, and Futura spread hip-hop to every corner of the city. Then in 1982, it traveled to Europe. Alison McCabe looks back at the path to that pivotal moment in hip-hop's evolution. After graduating from college in 1978, Michael Holman moved to New York for a job on Wall Street, but he says his interest led him elsewhere. I'd take myself to the one train stop on Hudson and Chambers, and these trains would roll in with these burners, graffiti burners, like covering the train from top to bottom. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was just like this sort of beautiful vandalism. Perusing the Village Voice, Holman read about the artist Fred Braithwaite, who went by Fab Five Freddy and served as an informal spokesperson for the Fabulous Five graffiti crew. He was basically saying in this little blurb in The Voice, that the Fabulous Five will come to your place of business or your home and do giant graffiti burners, and we price it out per the square foot. And I thought, wow, you know, that's really cool. There was a phone number, so he called. And in 1979, Holman, Freddie, and another artist, Dan Peskett, threw a soiree called the Canal Zone Party to connect with other emerging talents, including Basquiat. Later that year, Freddie showed his work on canvas at a gallery in Rome. Then he turned heads in New York with a Warhol-inspired soup can subway train mural. As Freddie told WNYC, art helped him to build bridges between worlds. You know, it was unusual for somebody black and from Brooklyn to insert themselves in the art world. It just didn't happen. So right. it was like, oh, these are some cool people. I think I can figure out a way in. And they embraced me. As Freddie's influence grew, he brought DJs Africa Bombada and Jazzy J downtown to perform at the Mud Club. And he took Christine and Debbie Harry uptown to the Bronx to see Grandmaster Flash, an exchange commemorated in Blondie's 1981 number one hit song, Rapture. Debbie Harry also introduced rappers Funky Four plus one more when they performed at the kitchen in Soho. And Blondie brought them along as musical guests on Saturday Night Live for rap's national TV debut. When English punks The Clash came to New York to record Sandinista in 1980, they also caught the beat, says the artist Futura, known then as Futura 2000. At that time, they had a record called Magnificent Seven, Magnificent Dance. It was a big, upbeat song. And it was being played on WBLX, which was a black station in here in New York. Ring, ring, 7 a.m. Move yourself to go again. Cold water in the face brings you back to this awful place. When The Clash played a 17-date concert series in New York in June of 1981, the band enlisted Grandmaster Flash as one of its opening acts. 
Futura painted live backdrops on stage. And when The Clash took the tour to Europe, Futura came along, this time painting and rapping his own manifesto. Graffiti is a thing that's kind of hard to explain, and it's just running around, spray painting your name. It's more than that if you want to be the best. At the same time, back in New York, Michael Holman brought ex-Sex Pistols impresario Malcolm McLaren to a park jam in the Bronx. He's dressed like a pirate from the Penzams on acid. Pantaloon pants and bright orange this and that and crazy, you know, like, like culture club. More like culture clash, but Holman says something magical happened. Jazzy gets on the turntable and starts to scratch records and quick cut and do all these isolated, you know, beat beats. And I'm saying to Malcolm, see Malcolm, see what he's doing? That's like special mix DJ. And see that kid over there? He's like breakdancing. And see that over there? That's graffiti. And, and Ike C on the mic, man, that's rapping. And, and Malcolm, like a light bulb goes on. And he's like, I get it. McLaren understood that like punk, hip hop wasn't just music, it was the future. So in September of 81, he asked Coleman to put together a show featuring DJing, MCing, breaking, and live graffiti art as an opener for the band Bow Wow Wow. That led to a weekly gig at a club called Negril, where B-Boys battled on the dance floor. Another McLaren associate, Ruza Cool Lady Blue, got things going at the Roxy, where she added one more element to the mix. McDonald's knows your double Dutchies really hard to beat. Cause when you jump in, you do something magic with your feet. 1980 Worldwide Double Dutch Champions, the Fantastic Four, caught Blue's eye when she saw them in McDonald's commercials. But teammate Dolores Finlayson says the connection between Double Dutch and the other elements of hip-hop was foundational. Every jump, whether it was single rope, mostly Double Dutch, though, I don't care if you were clapping your hands or whatever you were doing, you were rhyming to it. It always came hand in hand. Always that synchronated sound and the rhythm and the beat and the rhyme and the ropes. For us, yeah, making part of hip hop, that's just where it all came from. In late November 1982, Blue and the French journalist Bernard Zecri brought dozens of hip hop artists, including the Fantastic Four, Futura, and Fab Five Freddy, to Europe for what was dubbed the New York City Rap Tour. Freddie was among those who released a song to promote it, his half-wrapped in French. And when the tour kicked off in Paris, Futura rapped, with assist from Freddie and guitarist Mick Jones of The Clash. New York City, rock the house, and graffiti, rock, shock the house now. Paris, France, shock the house. The people in Paris, rock the house. Photographer Jeanette Beckman was on assignment for Melody Maker to cover the London show. It was a weekly music paper, so we had to find content every week. So we'd have these weekly meetings, and we would all sit around going, who's going to do what? So I put up my hand saying I wanted to go and cover it. I didn't really know what it was going to be like. She'd been shooting two or three bands a week, mostly punk acts in small clubs. It would be dark, people pogoing, and, you know, people spitting and shouting. Beckman had never encountered anyone scratching, rapping, breaking, making graffiti art, or doing double dutch, let alone at the same time. I thought it was, for me, a kind of like a renaissance moment, to be honest, because I have never seen anything like it in my life. And it had so much good energy. And this seemed just, to me, full of kind of joy, I have to say. The tour went on to Germany, then wrapped in the States in L.A., 
Within the space of a year, hip-hop was showing up in films such as Style Wars, Wild Style, and Flashdance, lighting up fans on both sides of the Atlantic and beyond. For NPR News, I'm Allison McCabe. Irene Cara, who starred in and sang the hit title song from the 1980 movie Fame, has died at her home in Florida. She was 63. NPR's Chloe Veltman says the Oscar and Grammy Award-winning singer and actress influenced a future generation of artists. Born into a working-class Puerto Rican and Cuban-American family in the Bronx, New York, Irene Cara launched her performing arts career very young. Here she is at age eight, singing in Spanish on the original Amateur Hour. Cara became a household name for her starring role in Fame. The movie tells the story of a group of talented young hopefuls in New York trying to launch their careers in the cutthroat performing arts world. Broadway conductor and radio host Seth Radetzky says watching Kara in fame as a kid helped shape his career ambitions. Irene Kara specifically herself represented making it in the arts and gave us so much excitement and hope and enthusiasm to pursue the arts. It was Kara's high-octane performance of the title song from the 1983 movie Flashdance that further cemented her reputation. She co-wrote that song, which won her an Oscar and a Grammy. In an interview with Dick Clark on American Bandstand, Kara expressed excitement about her future prospects. What, what will the next five years bring for you, what are you uh, professionally? Hopefully a lot more records, a lot more movies. But her career started to flounder in the 1990s. Radetzky says Kara should have been given more opportunities. Her voice was so unique. She was an incredible actress. And, you know, it's really difficult when you're when you're not white <laughs> to get some great roles. Kara's publicist said plans are still in the works for the artist's funeral and memorial services. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm David Folkenflik. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X, Capital One. What's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 50 degrees in Boston, overcast, some rain likely today, and temperatures in the low 50s. Tonight, some rain and lows overnight in the mid-40s. Partly sunny skies tomorrow. Monday's highs reaching the mid-50s. On Tuesday, you can expect sunshine and highs in the mid-40s. Then looking ahead to Wednesday, some rain likely and highs in the upper 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. A WBUR investigation found that more than a dozen current Massachusetts police officers were fired or forced to resign from other departments. Now, some advocates and lawmakers say the state needs to do more to oversee policing. One of the main goals of the police reform of 2020 was to make sure that exactly these kind of transfers wouldn't happen. Our story tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.